Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the season review show of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nipun Chopra. Thanks for joining us today. Today's show will have four sections, and in each section we will discuss a set of five teams working our way from 20th all the way up to champions, Arsenal, just kidding, Leicester City. We will rate the team's season based on where we expected them and how they turned out to be. In order to help me do this, I'm joined by the best co-hosts I could hope for in Karthik Krishnayar and Kristen Henage. But before we do that, gentlemen... With Copa Centenario just around the corner, all of us at World Soccer Talk wanted to give you, our loyal listeners, a chance to watch the games in person. So let's really quickly talk about our sponsor, SeatGeek. World Soccer Talk listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek has taken all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. And to get your $20 rebate on tickets, this is what you need to do. Step one, download the free SeatGeek app. Yes, it's free. You don't have to pay for anything in the Apple Store. Step two, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. And see, step three, enter the promo code WSTPOD. That's WSTPOD. And step four, you buy your ticket and then SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So go ahead, guys, download the free SeatGeek app today and enter the promo code WSTPOD today. It's kind of fun, guys. I'm trying to get tickets for the Chicago game on June 7th. Uh, and I will be using SeatGeek for that, so make sure you do as well. All right, guys, let's get to section one where we'll talk about the relegation, uh, the teams that were relegated, as well as places 16 and 15. Oh, sorry, 17 and 16. So let's start with Aston Villa. Uh, Karthik, let's start here. Uh, for me, Aston Villa were, from the first day, the most likely candidates to get relegated. I think this is true for most people. Uh, I was on with uh, Nate Aberea on World Soccer Talk Radio, and I felt uh, that Villa were odds-on to get relegated as far back as September. And from the first week, maybe the second weekend on, it was pretty clear that personnel-wise they were struggling, a uh, bit, bit of turmoil at the club. We, we know they have uh, some decent players in that team and, and a new ownership, but Karthik, talk to me about what you see happening with Villa based on what you've seen this season. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. Obviously, new ownership now. And we'll see how many of these guys are, are retained in the championship. I think they had a bloated squad or at least a bloated wage budget. And a lot of guys that are not up for the what would be a fight in the championship, a grind, a 46-game grind where you're going to have to be 
uh, on your game uh, and and uh, focused and in many cases just very tactical and organized. Uh, Villa didn't resemble any of those things this season. So of the three teams going down, they were the least likely to well, the least likely to come back up anyway. But they they look like a team that will be in the championship for many years unless there is some sort of miraculous. Uh, clear out and assembling of a new squad using the parachute payments from the Premier League and the new owner's uh, individual wealth and generosity. Karthik, uh, sorry, Chris, what Karthik said on there is a good point to jump off on this conversation because as we know, the championship is one of the most difficult leagues in the world uh, and you have a bunch of these players that Karthik hinted at. We're talking about the likes of Agbon Lahore, Nzogbia, Mika Richards, Kev, um, not Kevin Richardson, not the guy from Backstreet Boys, uh, um, and Guzan, uh, Ayu, who will be move, try, getting a move. Same with Grealish. So there are players that you think maybe a little too good, quote unquote, for the championship. But at the end of the day, they need those players to come back up. So do you see them being able to retain some of the better players in this rather under uh, underperforming squad? I think some of the domestic ones will hang around. I think. Touched on Jack Grealish. I think he stays personally, and I mm. think he stays because he's going to see more benefit because he's not ready to start in the Premier League at this precise moment. He, he's a talent. I think everyone will agree with that. He's not nearly consistent enough for the Premier League at this precise moment. Mika Richards, I would put in the same boat as staying, but largely because I can't see anyone wanting to pay his salary. Right. He's on a lot of money. He wanted sixty-five thousand pounds a week to join Sunderland uh, before he, he signed with Villa, and. They're going to have to bite the bullet on that one and take it in. I you guys like Idrissi Gay, Jordan Batou, I think they've got some resale in the markets in, in France and things like that, a potential return there. Maybe even some in the Premier League, because I actually think Idrissi Gay, for all the struggles of Villa, he was was quite solid. Um, and I think you will see some depart. That's a natural consequence of relegation. I'm not convinced if we'll see the fire sale that's predicted. I actually think that it's a bit of a misnomer that that this fire sale occurs when a team goes down. If you look really, the one that jumps out to me is Leeds is the one that had a real sort of clear of the decks when they went down. I remember they got rid of a lot of players. They then brought a lot of players in on free transfers. Mm -hmm. Ever since that, I think really the, the teams tend to shed those who are either on the biggest wages or who have the biggest resale value. I think we'll see a similar thing with Villa personally. Karthik, who's going to be the next manager? Currently, sounds like it's Di Matteo who's uh, currying flavor at the club. Favor, uh, not Nigel flavor. <laughs> Nigel Pearson maybe uh, leading another team in the Midlands uh, in the championship. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've heard Di Matteo now. I, I, this is a difficult job, a big, big job. Maybe you want a guy who's accomplished in the championship. Di Matteo was able to get uh, local rivals West Brom promoted. And then maintain Premier League status, even though he got sacked that season. But he uh, he he's done it before, uh, albeit under different circumstances. West Brom, the season Dean Mateo led them, were uh, a team that was able to keep the core of their Premier League team intact. And Tony Mowbray had left to manage Celtic, and he was able to uh, be very successful that season. Newcastle and, and West Brom went down, and they bounced uh, right back up. Uh, and, and ran away with the championship. I think this Villa job is a little more difficult. So uh, looking at what he did at West Brom, that's a, that's a plus. Uh, it's obviously a local club, but I'm not I'm not sure. I, I just don't know who can do this job. This is going to be a difficult job. It's worth noting as well that Sky Italia are talking about Di Matteo for the Lazio job. They're saying he's actually in Rome 
as we speak right now, talking about that. He was at Schalke previously as well. I, I understand that the Schalke situation didn't end on the best of terms. And I'm loath not to offend Villa fans. At this precise moment, I'm not sure if his career hmm. sees him drop into the second tier. That that would be my concern. And if it isn't him, the then wealth of candidates to take over is just not there, I think. Right. And and that's my concern for Villa is that they are, are being taken over. There, there is a lot of optimism and a lot of ambition there. I think achieving that ambition, assuming this Lazio thing is not a, a smokescreen by Di Matteo and his people, it's a little bit concerned that that key piece just isn't in place yet. Chris, I get I, I wouldn't hold too much of the... Uh, uh, so, sorry, I wouldn't hold too much of the Schalke experience against them. It didn't go well, uh, and uh, obviously we, we, we've seen uh, other managers uh, uh, that are uh, Sammy Hippia, others not not do so well in uh, at big clubs in the Bundesliga who are foreigners. And uh, it's become Germany is becoming a league where you almost have to be a domestic manager unless you're managing Bayern Munich to be successful. So I, I wouldn't hold that against them. He, he has a much, much greater knowledge of English football than he does of German football, and English football is much more welcoming to outsiders than German football is. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely saw a, a link also to someone like Steve Bruce, uh, so that would be interesting. We, we'll know more as the summer goes along, but obviously it's a time of serious consideration for Villa, but maybe with the new ownership, and we hear that the ownership is looking to uh, throw some money into the club, so... We'll see what happens. Let's move to uh, North City. So with North City, uh, there were a couple of decent wins for North City at the start towards the start of the season against Bournemouth and West Brom. Uh, and then they had that huge loss against Newcastle in October, the 6-2. And for me, guys, the season was as good as over when Liverpool came back to win 5-4 in what was one of the games of the season. Um, if we remember, North City had actually led a couple of times in that game. And for them to not be able to hold on uh, kind of showed that even when North City was able to get past the opposition's defense, which was a problem for them, uh, they didn't have the strength of character to hold on to all three points or even one point in that game. So, Chris, talk to me about North City. Obviously, they have a big rebuilding job here as well. Uh, some players there, like Holohan, uh, Naismith, arguably, who, who signed from Everton in January, Basong, arguably, uh, are players that will angle for a move. Uh, can you see Norwich coming back next year? I think I can with the squad at the minute because I think it's locked in this difficult limbo between being almost too good or at the top end of the championship but not quite good enough for the Premier League. And I think they realised that in the first half of the season and that's why you saw them by the likes of Tim Closer, you saw them by the likes of our loan, excuse me, Dean Mercy and Bacani who after Stephen Naismith. I think Alex Neal realised that that team was missing quality in the key areas. So for that reason, assuming there isn't a huge fire sale, obviously Mbakani will go back to to his parent club. But in the likes of Closer and Naismith, you've got a decent foundation to build with, assuming they don't depart for, for other teams. And, and that's always a good starting point to be with. I, I said elsewhere that really for me, Norwich achieved kind of what I expected of them. And that can sound quite patronising. But what I mean by that is there wasn't drastic change from the championship squad. And a lot of the players that were in there had really already had opportunities in the top flight and hadn't taken them. And I didn't see a, a potential for drastic change or a drastic, drastic improvement, excuse me, in their performance levels. And I think that played out in the season. And for me, the second they lost to Sunderland, I think they, they were down. And I think their fans knew they were down, more importantly, because 
you have to be able to beat your rivals in that part of the league table, and, and they simply couldn't, which is, I imagine, quite frustrating, given they were able to beat Newcastle not long before that. Karthik, uh, I think that's a good point that Chris raises. It's something you and I talked about last week, that if you take Chelsea and Leicester out of the equation, the, the Premier League teams kind of fell into exactly where we expected them to, and that's definitely true of Norwich City. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly true. I mean, Norwich uh, surprised us early because they brought in, brought up largely an intact squad from the championship, as Chris mentioned. A lot of players who had been with this uh, side before in, in West Hulahan were talking about a player who's been with them in all three divisions. Norwich, uh, like Leicester City, spent uh, their first ever season outside the top two flights of English football and then quickly rebounded and ended up back in the Premier League. Uh, and Hulahan, uh, like, uh, like uh, Andy King, on Leicester is the guy that's that's been there that whole time. So they 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 they've been always very frugal and responsible with how they run their business compared to some of the other teams they've been competing with for relegation the uh, the last stint in the Premier League and then again this season. So I think that they're well positioned to, to bounce back up and in fact I I would put them as one of the favorites for promotion next season. In between those spells they had, had runs of a month, two months, two and a half months without winning a single game in the Premier League. And in some cases, not even getting a single point. Uh, there was one, one of those dips was a, a dip of seven su- successive league losses, if I'm not mistaken. So they just didn't find the consistency they needed. They had these little little spells which kept them in the race to stay in, in, the, in the division until the very end of, of the season. But uh, they just didn't have enough quality. They didn't have enough consistency. And there's no shame in that. They uh, they certainly spent less money than the teams around them and have probably a better chance of bouncing right back up than, than the teams that are going down with them. Absolutely. And Chris, I think we should spend a little more time on Newcastle United now. So let's, let's switch to Newcastle, uh, your beloved Newcastle. I think it's important to note that after Manchester City, Newcastle was a team most affected by injuries, second most injuries in the league this season. Uh, and obviously the the conversation right now is about whether Rafa stays or goes. Um, but let's talk about the season in general. For me, um, I thought that they were the least likely of the, f- the four teams that win the relocation battle to go down. I thought there was, uh, out of as far as player personnel goes, I thought they had the best player quality out of those four teams. Of course, the relegated teams plus Sunderland is what I'm referring to. So, uh, and I'm talking about the likes of Teote, Townsend, Wijnaldum. Mitrovic, uh, Gufran. I know you're not very hot on Colback, but I thought he did pretty okay. Uh, Colaccini, who's been a s- solid central defender for, for Newcastle for, for good eight, nine years now. Uh, Jan Mat, who's good as a fullback even, and then Kroll, who unfortunately got injured, but is a quality goalkeeper. So tell me what happened to Newcastle, because when I look at this team, it doesn't feel like a team that should have gone down. I think that's a an understandable assessment. What you can say is, is that actually this team didn't give itself the opportunity to succeed because it brought players in and didn't trust them or give them the opportunity to, to embed into the league. Um, they took risks in all the wrong areas. And the fact that they were willing to stay with Steve McLaren for so long has ultimately cost them their top flight status. I'll be very surprised if, if Steve McLaren gets another top flight job or even an important job off the back of this because I think he showed his limitations for all the talk of him being a modern coach. He isn't really. Mm. Um, I think he suffers a lot of the, the frailties that Roberto Martinez does. And, and at his age, 
he should be more developed than that. Um, I think certainly you see a strong upturn with the arrival of Benitez. And as you said yourself, that keeping him next season is vital for that football club. It, it will arguably fall into a, a chronic tailspin if, if he doesn't stay around. Now, the good thing for, for fans is that all of the talk emanating from the city is that he will stay and that it's all but agreed now, which is it's a good first step. I think we can definitely say that it's a good first step. Um, as for the personnel, yeah, again, all very, all very solid players. I think if, if you give them a full season with Benitez, they stay up quite comfortably. They probably finish in the top 10 even. The problem you have is, is and I've said this elsewhere, that if you sell the, the football club as a stepping stone for players, which they have done consistently for the likes of Sissoko and Wijnaldum, when th- things get difficult, when things get tough, you're not going to have the characters around who need to dig in and battle. Um, none, if any, of the Sunderland players that managed to survive, I think, were sold on Sunderland being a stepping stone. Mm. Consequently, when they needed to dig in, they dug in. Um, and it will be now interesting to see which sort of rats flee that ship. Um, I think some of them need to go, personally. I think some of them are, are toxic personalities. Others could do with maybe like, sticking like around who, like and, who, and who taking you, who that Who would you year. put in that category? I think Moose Soko is, is one. Um, certainly, he picked up with Benitez. But for me, he's someone that talks more about playing for a Champions League team than he ever has about playing for Newcastle. Um, and no sooner had he arrived than he was linking himself with moves away. And again, I think on his day, he's a good player. The, the problem is he, he's, he's yet to perform with the consistency for me to believe that he deserves that Champions League spot. Now, again, I appreciate that I'm a fan and, and that sort of thing, but I like to think and, and believe I have enough objectivity now to to evaluate whether a player deserves that position. He simply doesn't. He's not consistent enough. He, he didn't score, I think, until three quarters into this season. He drifts out of games. He's not committed enough. He's not nearly aggressive enough for a midfielder in his position. And overall, he, he's part of the reason they're going down. And to see him talk about or leak these kind of things about he has no intention of playing in the championship, you, you're playing your level, mate, to be brutally honest about it. You're playing where you, where you deserve to be at this point. Karthik, there's a feeling about Newcastle that they are a top-loaded squad in the terms of the, the wages they might be paying and uh, some of the players they have in terms of the quality of the players. So my worry about Newcastle is that... Uh, so you were talking about Norwich being one of your favorites. For me, Newcastle is probably the favorite out of the three to come back up. But the worry I have is the off-field stuff in terms of Mike Ashley and what he does with this squad. Because as uh, another Newcastle United supporter who's opinion I really respect, along with Chris's, mentioned to me that it might happen that Mike Ashley would just use this as an excuse to get rid of the, all the good players, really strip the squad down and just keep using it as a money-making tool as opposed to uh, anything on the football pitch, which is a bit cynical, but it's possible. Well, that's part of the reason why there's so much uh, angst about Rafa Benitez's decision and keeping Rafa Benitez around. I think Newcastle supporters... A lot of them interpret if Benitez walks away, then that is Ashley's plan. If Benitez is empowered to is, stays and is empowered to make football decisions, which evidently he's going to de- de- demand, and guys like Chanley, uh, Graham Carr are, are more cut out of the process. Uh, Chanley and, and Carr are certainly more company men than Benitez ever would be. Then um, perhaps uh, there's some hope. I, I think Newcastle is pretty well positioned to balance 
bounce back up, but there's going to have to be a squad refresh and a clearing out of a number of players that uh, just don't fit the bill. Whereas Norwich, I think, is is almost turnkey. Uh, they're, they're, they're now becoming your quintessential yo-yo club, mm-hmm. and they have an opportunity uh, to bounce right back up, just like Burnley did this season, just like Norwich did the previous season. So I I, uh, I, I think Newcastle is well-positioned, particularly Benitez days. If they don't, if he doesn't stay, and Ashley brings in somebody as manager who's going to defer on the football decisions to um, to Chonley and to Carr and others, and, and also uh, start this revolving door of man- managers, which we see with a lot of championship clubs, now I think Newcastle is going to be down for, for some time. Chris, one final question about Newcastle, which is if you see them coming up next season, tell me a couple of personnel, a couple of players outside of Benitez, a couple of players that you think they have to hold on to. I think Chancellor Bember is one. Um, I think Alexander Mitrovic is another one because mm-hmm. he is a player, I think, who, for all of his uh, temperament issues, has tremendous potential. I think he's a very intelligent forward. Andros Townsend is, is the other obvious one. I think in an ideal world, you would maybe want to keep someone like Ginny Van Alden. I'm not sure if that's feasible, though. I think at least Townsend, because he's English, mm-hmm. there's a potential you can sell him on the fact that look at the benefit it's had because in credit to Townsend he said himself it's Benitez that's got him back into the England squad mm-hmm. um, and he's helped him improve his game so you hope maybe there's a a belief there's or a realisation yeah. on his part that, yeah exactly perfect word incentive for him to stay there um, I think if, if you can keep them that's a good foundation to start with um, what I would say, though, is, and, and again, I think this is testament to the work that, that Benitez has done, is that actually I think there's a lot more of those players now who are w- willing to stay, knowing that he's going to be there, than if he did departed the scene. Um, but I think if you keep them, then you've got guys like Jamal Lascelles, who will be happy to stay, Jack Colback. It starts to build a decent squad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, again, the other optimistic thing you're looking at is part of Benitez staying was kind of gauging who would who would remain on the playing side how much money he'd be given so if he's been convinced by that i think that should be a a really big kind of uh incentive and positive for newcastle fans to take away from karthik let's talk about sunderland they did it again somehow uh i think that they were in the relegation battle for a majority of the season and some really good transfer moves in january help them stay in the top division. But moving forward, Karthik, there are questions of their long-term future in the Premier League, as well as, uh, as we've talked about in the podcast multiple times, the propensity to fire managers mid-season, which seems to work, but uh, isn't always the best thing for the long-term future of a club. And the other thing that worries me, Karthik, is this, the age of the squad. Lots of old players, lots of careers that are, uh, lots of players who are at the end of their career. So, is Sunderland just going down the route of being a club that that plans for a one-year season, or at some point they're going to have to start looking at the bigger picture, aren't they? Yeah, I certainly hope, hope that that this season, or actually next season under Sam Allardyce, will be the beginning of more long-term planning. But it seems like Sunderland is in constant crisis mode. They lurch from crisis to crisis. They load their squad up with veteran players, high-wage players, and they survive every season. This season, they actually spent more days in the relegation zone than Aston Villa, believe right, it or not. Right, right. They were in the relegation zone than more than any other club uh, for more days than any other club, albeit most of the most of the season in 18th or 19th. Uh, mm-hmm. Villa, once they 
were buried, they were dead and buried, right? They were right. they were twentieth from November onward. But uh, Sunderland was in the drop zone from the very first game of the season, uh, only briefly out uh, in in November. Stayed in until the uh, the, the next the final match day or the next the final weekend, right? Because they had a match in hand. They played midweek that week and and, and ensured safety. They it's going to be fascinating to see if Allardyce makes a long-term commitment to the club and what their buys are like this season, because they have a lot of players they need to clear out there. And they've got um, this culture where results don't seem to matter for them until the very end of the season. And they desperately need to get out of trouble. Uh, we've seen, we've seen it year in and year out or season in and season out where they switch off in August, September and October. And then they start getting desperate in November. They, they cobble together a few results. Um, this happened uh, the, the, the season where Paulo DeCanio was sacked and uh, Goose Poyet came in. And then uh, they go back into another dip, and then they frantically get out at the end. And then uh, that's, that's the same thing. So they don't start playing until November, and inevitably they have another dip after November. And that was the same pattern this season. The, the managerial change was made earlier this year, but um, I don't know. There's a, there's a culture... There's a malaise. Uh, there's a uh, just a, a a situation where I think the club would actually have been in a better position at some point if they had gone down and consolidated and come back up than uh, this constant great escape and taking on higher and higher wage players, more and more veteran players. At least this time, they showed some creativity in their buys, bringing in Kazri, Kone, and Kirchhoff. Yeah, those three those three players who are all uh, outstanding, three continental players. So maybe that that bodes a change under Sam Allardyce, but uh, I don't know. I, it's impossible to have any faith in Sunderland. Chris, the, since we are talking about players, one player that we have to, again, discuss is Jermaine Defoe. Uh, terrific this season. He's 34 years old and shows no signs of of uh, slowing down in terms of being a goal-scoring machine. I think, I think his only struggles really have come when he, he's had to compete with other strikers. I think it's a confidence issue. As long as he's the main go-to striker, I think he will give you goals for another two or three seasons. So from that sense, Sunderland are well-placed in terms of finding a, a, a game winner. Yeah, I think that's a fair evaluation. I, what I would say is, and it almost ties in with, with Kartik's point, is that in the way that they bought Defoe, that typifies many of their struggles in the sense that there isn't much for planning there isn't much of would a you, would you have there that they stuck actually... with Altador? no I did. what I mean by that is uh, Jermaine Defoe was not someone they actively scouted and pursued for a long time mm. it was an opportunistic signing mm. and it was one that was made on the fly and I think I mean look you said yourself he's 34 mm-hmm. we can we can predict that he'll have a few years left in him but, but there's every opportunity that he totally tanks next season Right. or the season after, or he just doesn't find the net as, as regularly. And equally, the fact that, again, so many of their goal-scoring hopes are hung on him, it's a talismanic issue with Sunderland, and it's one they've, they've wrestled with for a few years now. If it wasn't Jermaine Defoe, it was Stephen Fletcher. If it wasn't Fletcher, it was Adam Johnson. It's this issue that actually, and I think Sam Allardyce will bring this, thankfully, finally, for the football club, they need to become a team. They need to stop hanging their hopes on this one player to turn the game for them and assuming that they can have these 10 water carriers and just one one difference maker because inevitably what will happen is teams will shut down that difference maker and 
I've seen it happen countless times where a team will just bunch up on Adam Johnson or they'll bunch up on Stephen Fletcher. And it means that the other 10 players then have to try and find a way to score when it's not really in their wheelhouse. I think what you can say from, from the positive is, is that Allardyce has also improved the transfer um, situation there or the, the scouting or recruitment considerably with just one window. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for the signings he brought in January. His record is, is not cast iron. Um, he will, will have the occasional flop, but I would put my money if I was betting on a roulette wheel that, that, that he'll get it right more than he gets it wrong. And that's what that football club needs more than anything right now. It needs that because for far too long, they've given far too much money to the wrong people. Will Sunderland stay up next season? I'm going to say yes because I just think that Sam Allardyce is built for that. Karthik? Allardyce as a manager, yes. Allardyce as a manager, yes. Uh, if he leaves and someone else takes over mid-season, uh, they'll finally go down. And one final question, Karthik, I'll come to you. We have to, as lovers of the U.S. Men's National Team, talk about Yedlin. There's reports now that he will be a permanent transfer. I think it's the quoted price around 2 or $3 million. Um, he he's he's at the other end of his career. We've talked about the older players, whereas Yedlin is someone who needs to really improve his game, his defensive abilities, his ability to read the game better. Obviously, he has the physical attributes to be a top-level player. We've discussed this a lot of times. But Karthik, do you think under the tutelage of of Allardyce, who's better with established players, uh, who's a better man manager uh, with established players, do you think Yedlin will thrive and become a regular Premier League level player? I I actually expect him to buy another right back this this uh, summer, yeah. and a right back that will probably start ahead of Yedlin. That having been said, Yedlin has improved dramatically in his defensive positioning sense, his uh, ball winning ability, just the way he reads the game in the short period under which he's played under Sam Allardyce, and and he did play a pretty critical role. There were still some some mistakes, right? The mis communication right. in playing the offside trap against uh, Chelsea uh, but he's played he played a pretty critical role defensively in their escape this time uh, with with some uh, key uh, ball winning challenges so I think he will be a long-term signing for them and that's good to see for them hopefully from the U.S. men's national team perspective Spurs do accept the reported offer if he goes back to Spurs he's just going to be loaned out like Ryan Mason and Andres Townsend and and now right. Simon Dawkins a player we're familiar with in the United States and plays for San Jose Earthquakes were you know six seven eight times even Harry Kane was loaned out a bunch of times mm-hmm. before he uh turned into the player he is so that's the way Spurs bloodlets their youth and hopefully this is just the one loan for Yedlin and he gets sold permanently to Sunderland and can settle there yeah, I have to admit, I, I'm a little less sold on Yedlin's improvement. I think his real improvement has come, again, on the offensive front. I think his crossing has gotten better. But I think defensively, his speed gets him out of trouble. But I think his positioning is still very questionable. So um, it's interesting. I, and I'll just tell what, Go ahead. I'll just point this out for, for people who may not be familiar with uh, how the U.S. men's national team operates. Uh, the U.S. men's national team is so desperate for a player with his crossing ability and his pace that he already has 31 caps for the senior national team at the age of 20, uh, 22, which is just an unprecedented number. Yes. I mean, he he might break the all time caps record at this rate because he's getting so many games with the national team. And this is a player who hasn't consistently played club football during that period. So that's uh, that tells you kind of the situation with the U S men's national team. 
Yeah. Final final team in this section, gentlemen, is Burnmouth. Uh, Chris, the, the irony for me with Burnmouth was that some of their best football came at a time when they had about half of their first team missing. Uh, and in general, I think the goal was always to stay in the Premier League, and they have managed that. So a successful season. Definitely. I think they've benefited from the ineptitude of the teams that have gone down. I also think, though, that they deserve immense credit for um, sort of coming back from, from those early losses. The fact that, you know, Tyrone Mings, uh, Wilson went down, I think yeah. uh, Max Gradle went down as well with long-term injuries. They're big, big players for them. I mean, Callum Wilson in particular was huge for them last season um, in the championship. So showing that sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, kind of mentality, that kind of strength, that character, Testicular fortitude. There we go. Let's go with the 90s wrestling (laughs) reference. Um, I I think they deserve immense credit for that. I think also you've got to look at Eddie Howe as someone that that has come into the league and has adapted. I think you watch those those first half of the season performances. There was a naivety in there. There was a belief that they could come and do things that they'd done in the championship. And he quickly realized they couldn't. They had to approach things far differently. And I think you watch them from from January onwards, you kind of see that. You see a change in the way that Bournemouth operated and it's it's earned them wins that will keep them in the Premier League now and give them a fantastic foundation to to build on and moving into the the next season. Karthik, if it weren't for Leicester, I think we would be talking a lot more about Bournemouth because they really are a success story. What they have been able to do even this season, even finishing 16th is an incredible story. I keep telling my friends that this is a club whose home stadium is as big as my Indy 11 stadium. They have 11,000 people at that home stadium every week. It is an incredible story what they've been able to do. And for them to come within five or ten years from where they were unto where they are now, where they were able to easily sign, negotiate with someone of the caliber of Iturbe, I, I know that, that the transfer didn't work out, but for them to have that uh, negotiation ability is an incredible story. Right, or even Max Gradle. Now, Max Gradle yeah, had Gradle history well. with Eddie Howe, which yeah. is why why he signed. But uh, I remember Jose Mourinho being stunned when that transfer happened, mm-hmm. saying, yeah, that's the kind of player I could have brought to Chelsea. He's that good. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, Gradle got hurt early on. We, we, we spoke about that, and, and somehow they were able to to manage, uh, without uh, those guys, uh, the, the transfer of a phobe in January was critical. And mm-hmm. uh, a good transfer for Wolves also, because they made a nice little profit on him. But... I think it's important to look at what Chris just said. Bournemouth came into the league playing very kind of sil- uh, slick, silky football, the way Eddie Howe had played uh, with them to get them up the divisions and, and, and what he had done at uh, Burnley, which is why he appealed to Burnley when they brought him in to replace Brian Laws, who, who had been a kind of a very negative coach. And, and uh, they played a very nice, uh, pleasing on the eye style, uh, and, but he was sacked at Burnley and came back to Bournemouth. And has done continued the progression of the club. The progression in the club, obviously, it started under him before he uh, took that that sabbatical, if you want to call it, at Burnley. Right. By about November, he realized that playing openly, especially with Wilson out, Gradle out, uh, Tyrone Mings out, w- was uh, going to be a problem, particularly against the bigger sides in the Premier League. So we saw several games where Bournemouth gave up possession. They allowed the other team to have the ball, which is not how they started the season. And not how they played in the championship last year or League One uh, three seasons ago. And uh, 
they were successful defending and then hitting teams on the counter or taking their chances on set pieces. Uh, I, I thought uh, Glenn Murray coming in for a period of time during the season uh, from Crystal Palace really helped them, and he scored some critical goals and was also that kind of gritty, resourceful player uh, that could grind out games, that could help you grind out games that they didn't have previously. So uh, he, he has the magic touch. The question now for Eddie Howe is, this is his club. This is the club he played for. He retired at a young age because of injuries. Uh, he's managed them his entire career besides that one one year away at, at, at Burnley. Right. Does he continue to try and build this thing up? Uh, or have they hit uh, the high watermark? And is this the time where if uh, another South Coast club were to come calling in the near future, Southampton uh, would be the obvious one, or, or Swansea, uh, one of those clubs, would he jump? Um, that's a big question question going forward but for now they look very well positioned uh, to maintain their Premier League status now they're going to have 120 million dollars to spend they were a team that spent uh, a survey didn't work out uh, but a full they did they're a team that spent I thought pretty wisely in January they knew they needed a big time striker that were going to get them a few goals in critical matches and a full they did that uh, the only concern I guess I have about Bournemouth just to finish up is that once the cherries got to that 40 point mark they, they seem to have shut off on the right. season um, that is that a concern going forward? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that really matters, but it's just one thing to note. Yeah, next season, Jeff uh, Chairman Jeff Mostyn will definitely be looking at that and uh, giving a hold of those players and his manager will be a focus in the summer. Gentlemen, when we come back for Section 2, we will talk about Crystal Palace, West Brom, Watford, as well as uh, Swansea City and Everton. So join us for Section 2 of the World Soccer Talk podcast. We'll be right back. I think let's start with you with Crystal Palace. They had a great start to the season. We, we've talked about on the podcast how they were as high as fifth around Christmas. But the second half was absolutely horrible. Uh, and, and players that succeeded in the first half, I'm thinking of the likes of Punchin and Bolasi, really struggled in the second uh, in terms of providing goals. I mean, they were still Crystal Palace's best players, but that, that, was, a, uh, that was the best of a really poor bunch. And their best... I guess the, the, the highlight of their season was this FA Cup run uh, playing Man United in the final. But even that ended on a sour note uh, as they ended up losing uh, uh, and coming up runners-up in the FA Cup. Yeah, I think you pretty much described it. Punchin uh, didn't score the goals he had in previous seasons for them. I thought he was still one of their better players, if not their best player. Yeah. Uh, Kabai was underwhelming at times this season. Yeah, uh, I uh, Pardew started the season without Yedinak in the team. Uh, it, it worked for a certain period of time, but it, it, finally he had to insert the the, uh, the really um, resourceful Australian back into the side. Uh, I thought Velocity was pretty good. Uh, Zaha was hit or miss. Their strikers were hit or miss. Connor Wickham had, had a good run of a few games, then tailed off. Same thing he did at Sunderland a few seasons ago, although he was critical in getting them out in one of those great escapes we've talked about. He, he was very hit or miss. Uh, Dwight Gale continues to be an enigma a player that I think they're going to probably move on in the summer. I um I was disappointed by Palace this season. I thought they'd be a lot better, thought being they'd be in a lot better position, and I was ultimately disappointed by them in the FA Cup final. Yes, you could argue Clattenburg had some bad moments, mm-hmm. uh, but given their ability to press high up the pitch, given Zaha's desire to win that game that we saw, and Zaha had a very good game, and Belasi's uh, uh, pace advantage against Manchester United, it just seemed like a very good matchup for Crystal Palace, and the match played out the way I thought it would. Palace had 
created the more chances and the better chances, but ultimately uh, they weren't able to deal with Rooney dropping deep and 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 creating uh, uh, opportunities for his teammates and, and handling the ball and bringing the ball up the pitch, and they got beat even with uh, a man advantage. So I um I don't have maybe Chris differs with me on this because he's watched Pardew operate at a much closer level than I do, but I, I have um I'm disappointed in the job Pardew's done. I think he's been uh, overhyped by many in the, in the British press. And I, I think he, because of his links to Palace as a club, he won't be sacked now. But you have to think Steve Parrish and the board have to strongly consider this early next season because, to me, they're a favorite to go down, even though on their, their squad on paper is a mid-table squad because Pardew seems incapable of managing certain game situations, and he seems incapable of getting consistent performances out of his side. And this is a five or six year story in the Premier League. This isn't just something that happened um, this starting this December, this past December. It's a consistent pattern with his clubs. Chris, this, let's talk about party. I think he's the first manager to get to probably f- for the sack. I think that's uh, likely that that would be my guess would be the first manager next season to get sacked. But I feel for party a little bit because let's talk about Wolf Saha, a player that Karthik mentioned, right? He's, he's, at the moment, their most exciting player. Uh, and yet, I'm going to describe to you a moment in the FA Cup final. This is towards. This is an injury time. Uh, Zaha goes past someone at midfield uh, with a really good turn. Goes past another couple of players. Just slides past Car- Carrick. Uh, and with a really sweet overstep, uh, the, the Cristiano Ronaldo overstep, he gets past Smalling. Now, he's, there are two players between him and the goal. One is Blint. One is De Gea. And his shot ended up closer to the corner flag than it did to the goal. So I think it's a perfect example of some of the players in this Crystal Palace team. Lots of ability, lots of uh, desire to get past the player, but no finished product. So how much of the fault can we lay at the feet of Pardew? And how much of the fault is the quality of the player at Crystal Palace? I think that's an interesting refreshing way to look at it. What I would say is, is that I don't think Alan Pardew endears himself to people with his conduct. Hmm. The you, you, are you talking about the dance? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the dance after Punchin's goal. I think the way that he talks about Yannick Balassi if he's a £40 million pound player um, after some good form. He's someone, and I, and I forget who said this, it was a chap on ESPN FC, said that when things are going right, he basks in it as if it's all he's doing. Right. And when things are going wrong, he throws everybody else under the bus before he will even consider throwing himself under. To me, that's that's a very good way of characterising it. And I think this is the, the problem that Pardew has. I don't think he's a, an inherently bad manager. I think he has a difficulty in redressing bad form, though. And too often when things do start to go wrong for him, that's when they go into a real tailspin. And this is, again, this is one of the reasons why Newcastle fans wanted rid of him in the first place, was that the form had become so bad. And I think this is why they they got really annoyed when people, you know, kind of said, oh, careful what you wish for and all this kind of stuff. Because we're seeing an identical situation play out with Palace. The form, FA Cup aside, has been incredibly poor. Yes, I think they've done well to stay in the league again. And for a club like Palace at its current situation the more seasons you stay in the Premier League the better because you need that consistency that doesn't change the fact that they completely 
tanked after Christmas mm-hmm. um, and were tr- really poor. And the fact that he'll come out and say things like he did in his program notes, that if we'd had more of the decisions, maybe we could have been Leicester. That's just a farcical <laughs> assertion. Absolutely farcical. And that's the problem with him, is that he never takes responsibility. And I think for all of the love in that him being ex-Palace, I see why that exists. I also think there may come a time, possibly in the near future, where Palace fans actually start to ignore that part of his career and look at it for what it is now, which is a team that could be in real trouble next year if he doesn't fix the problems that have presented themselves in that squad. Karthik, let's talk about another manager who divides opinion, Tony Pulis at West Brom. Uh, I think one of the things that I definitely scoff, uh, I definitely, uh, scoff at is the style of football, and I think you do too, Karthik. I think we're in agreement on that, but we have to give this manager credit when you look at the fact that the defensive record at West Brom was better than all but the top six clubs in the Premier League. That is an amazing record for a, a team that finished as low as West Brom did. Yeah, um, that's that's very true. I think, uh, however, West Brom got the results they needed when they needed it. It was a, gr- a great annoyance to people because of the style they were playing. And, and they were able to uh, secure Premier League status again. And this, this is no small feat. Uh, that they've stayed in the league as long as they have because they've been historically a yo-yo club. And they're the only club from what is now an economically deprived region, the West Midlands, that has stayed in the Premier League. Villa's gone, Wolves are gone, uh, Birmingham City's gone, Coventry's long gone. So they, um, I think they're happy with the job he's done, and the question is now how much of a transfer budget did they give him? And uh, does he stick around? And, and we talked about this a little bit on the pod last week, so I don't want to, uh, I don't want to get too deep into it. I think I, I uh, said my piece last week. That's the big decision now for Palace. I think they're going to, uh, excuse me, for West Brom. I think they're going to do what they feel like they need to do to retain him and give him the budget. And as he did at Stoke and as he did at Palace, he's going to blow a lot of money on, on players that fit his style that are uh, average or slightly above average players, but they'll stay in the Premier League. And if that's uh, Premier League survival is what you want, uh, you've got a specialist and, and why mess with it? Yeah, the, the reports right now that Sessignon and Nietzsche have been released from the club. Uh, and there are some players on that team that uh, you might argue will uh, will definitely want to stay at the club. But we have to see what happened to Berahino. They've, that they've already given Rondon the number nine for next season, okay. apparently, by the way. So he'll be there. He'll stick gotcha. around. Rondon will be there. Berahino is definitely the big question. We know he had a falling out and then a kiss and make up with Pulis. So we don't know what will happen there. Uh Chris, let's move to uh, talk about Watford. The news between the end of the season now is Walter Mazzari, former Inter, Sampdoria, Napoli boss, has been appointed manager. Uh, the high, I think the best way to summarize their season, Chris, was definitely that in the first half of the season, they were one of the teams to watch. Every week we saw at least one of Igalo and Dini scoring. Uh, but then those goals dried up in the second half and the questions right now with the new manager, with with the club being uh, with not with not top finishing uh, higher than they did, is can they hold on to their main uh, goal scorers, Igalo and Dini? Igalo, I think, is uh, probably more likely to go, but there there's conversation that Dini might actually move to Leicester City. That's the concern, isn't it? Because again, there was a lot of uncertainty about that pair coming into the Premier League and whether they could adapt. Um, I think they've shown. They can. Um, I like a lot of what Argalo represents. I also like a lot of what Dini represents. It depends very much, I think, on 
how the club view the two players. Because realistically, because he's English, you will get more for Dini than you will for Gallo. I think what you have to ask yourself as a Watford fan is, who's easier to replace? Because I think Dini was more involved in not just scoring goals, but also setting them up and being helpful to teammates. Is that easier to replace than someone like Igalo, who's, who's who is a pure goal scorer? That's a question they'll have to answer because, again, they, they've got, I believe his name is Isaac Success at Granada, who right. could possibly come over. Yeah, the two, the two, two players from Granada, United. right? Two young players from Granada that are heading to Watford. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the curious thing I think with with this club every every kind of season and every time we we look at them is they've just got this wealth of options elsewhere that they can call upon. Um, and personally, again, if they can hold off on those, I'd be surprised because I think if you look at the Pozzo model, it usually is to to buy these players low and sell them high. Yeah, Karthik, let's talk about Swansea City, the Gaffers' beloved. Swansea City. Some poor results under Gary Monk, who I, I really do feel for. Uh, but the the facts show that once Francesco Guidolin came in, he managed to steady that ship. They had some terrific results uh, after he was in. And I'm talking about the likes of 4-1 wins against West Ham, that 3-1 against Liverpool that could have been 8-1, uh, the 2-1 against Arsenal. Uh, so the two questions I have is, because I love myself some Gary Monk, what do you think is next for Gary Monk? And the second question is, uh, will someone like Sigurdsson definitely stay at Tottenham after, uh, sorry, stay at Swansea after what happened at Spurs, right? Because he's their best player. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think he's he's going to stick it out at, at Swansea now, and he, he realizes uh, he, where where he where unfortunately where he is in the pecking order. And there's talk that Wolf Boney and um, Joe Allen might be back at Swansea, right. so the, the old band will be getting back together, right? right. Uh, there, there's something about that club that brings out the best in these players. Uh, the, for Joe Allen, he's Welsh, so maybe it makes sense. But for uh, Sigurdsson and, and Bone, it just might be um, the comfort of, of the surroundings and 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 and, and the setup love there of and love of the players. Chairman. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Good, good, good. did a very good job. He's a good manager. When he got appointed, I said that that he had been excellent. Udinese. I didn't know if he would take the English football well, which is why they kept Alan Curtis around as, as a, kind of a co-coach or a, a, um, a high-profile assistant coach uh, with, with more than the typical assistant role. Uh, and uh, the acclamation was good. I thought Swansea ended the season very strongly. Uh, we were worried if they'd get to 40 points, they got to 47. They looked more like a mid-table team looking pushing for Europe at the end than a, a team that had just barely scraped by like West Brom and Bournemouth did. So, uh, I think things are on the up once again for Swansea. As far as Gary Monk, um, I don't know. I, I I hate to see this reflects poorly on him the way that uh, uh, this season ended for Swansea, but I, I suppose it does. I think his next job is a place like Villa or a uh, another big club in the Championship that's uh, uh, ambitious and looking to uh, to push back up into uh, the Premier League. So uh, that's probably where he'll end up. I, I see him in a Championship club. Yeah, I think I agree with you. It's rather unfortunate because I do think he's a good. Uh, manager and a good man in general. So, uh, but yeah, I agree with you. I think Swansea did really well once uh, Monk, uh, Gary Monk, left the club. So it does. Uh, it's indicative of how he might have uh, been managing the club towards the end of his career, and that is true also of the next club we'll go to, uh, Chris, which is Everton. Uh, we know as soon as Martinez left, they posted a three nothing win in the last game of the season. Uh, could not, could not 
kill for a win for a majority of the previous three months before that. So I guess we have to start with Martinez. Uh, the best way to, I guess, summarize is that a hugely talented team, and when we're talking about the likes of Lukaku and Barkley uh, and Gareth Barry, etc., underperformed under someone who is being regarded by many as a vastly overrated manager. I must confess, I, I have such a difficult time with, with Martinez because I, I don't think he's the charlatan that's being portrayed. Yes, he's had a very difficult season with Everton. I think what needs to happen for him is he has to now evolve and compromise. I think he reached he's reached a plateau in his, his career where he can play very beautiful football. I think that's been shown. And he can do it with players that maybe traditionally you wouldn't think can do that. What he now needs to do is work on the other aspects of his, his managerial game in terms of defensive work and and building a team idea and and I think just working without the ball sometimes um, I think yes the project had run its course at Evan no one's going to try and argue otherwise um, I just think like I say he needs to now go in and just maybe take a job somewhere else and, and try some different things with his, his managerial approach I think that could work wonders for him. Karthik, uh, the, the challenge is now for Everton, having got rid of Martinez, who I actually agree with Chris. I don't, I don't uh, criticize him as much as a lot of people do, but obviously the facts do support that he struggled at Everton. But this, the, the challenges for the club now are keeping the likes of Lukaku, who I think we all in agreement will leave Everton, whether it's for PSG or United or uh, Bayern, as some people are predicting. Uh, Lukaku, Barkley, even uh, some of the the many wingers they have. So double for you, right? Right, Zelafeo definitely. So many so, wingers. So yeah, we we don't. There are lots of challenges for the next manager at Everton. Yeah, certainly. And for, first off, I I was confused last week or two weeks ago when you asked me the question about the, the term charlatan. I I actually hadn't called him that. I I said that he was a bit of a a media creation and a media sensation. I haven't used the term charlatan to describe the U.S. men's national team manager, Jurgen Klinsmann, who I would love to see Roberto Martinez replaced, by the way. Since Roberto Martinez is still solid in the U.S. <laughs> I, I'll take, yeah, I'll take any manager over Klinsmann. I mean, I think he's the worst worst possible fit for, for the set of players that the U.S. has right now. But mm-hmm. that's another subject for another time, another day. We'll have plenty of time to talk about that over the summer. Yeah, I think um, now the question is, do you take a step back if you're Everton considering you might lose these players and, and you consolidate with a team, with a manager who's going to play pragmatic football and, um, and, and maybe more defensively in the way that David Moyes was accused of playing. Mm-hmm. Do you do that? Or you do, do you go out and aggressively get a hot young manager, Ronald DeBoer is a name on, on most people's lips. I think now it's becoming and, obvious. And you don't mean attractive, what he attractiveness. Wants. You, you mean level of manager, right? Yeah, level. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank, thank you for that clarification. Brendan Rodgers is now off the market, so that that, that uh, is no longer a consideration. Uh, but uh, Rodgers is going to Celtic, so he, he's not going to have take the, the Everton job. I think the whole conversation about Benitez was a non-starter. So they have to make a decision. Did, did, did they uh, bring in a DeBoer and then spend a lot of money uh, trying to retain some of these players and, and go, go for it next season, or do they consolidate? Uh, finish 11th or 12th again, and then build under that young manager, and uh, and, and and look to the future. Uh, that's that's a big question. I think a lot will be determined by um, who they lose beyond Lukaku. I think it's pretty obvious they're going to lose Lukaku. But did they 
do they sell stones to Manchester City or Chelsea? Right. Do they sell Barkley to Arsenal or Manchester City? That's that's the question. Now, if they start unloading these players, they sell Delafeu, although they have a lot of wingers, as you mentioned, then I think the job is to just consolidate, and that might be where you bring in um, a young manager with a long-term vision. If the job is to is to take this particular set of players, even if you lose Lukaku, but the rest of the team, and... Um, and push for Europe next season, then I think you do make whatever play you can to get Ronald Koeman from Southampton. Yeah, we're done with half of the teams, gentlemen. So in section three, we will talk about uh, one of the biggest disappointments, Chelsea, uh, possibly overachieving Stoke City. We'll talk about Liverpool, uh, West Ham, and one of the stories of the season, Southampton. So we'll be right back for section three of the World Soccer Talk podcast. Chris, one of the biggest stories of this season was the capitulation of last year's champions, Chelsea. But I think it's gone a bit unnoticed that Chelsea, the the wheels for Chelsea did start to come off towards uh, the end of uh, end of last season. They weren't playing uh, very attractive football. They were playing a style of football that was more in line with Mourinho uh, as opposed to the style of football in the first half of last season where they were playing, they were scoring goals for fun. So. Uh, so the start of this season, there's a lot of things that happened with the Eva Carneros uh, situation and a lot of off-field uh, stuff started to happen. Uh, we heard about reports of Mourinho already falling out of the players, uh, out of favor with his players such as Hazard, Costa and Fabregas. Uh, and was it a case of the media overblowing these things or do you think things actually really did fall apart for Mourinho uh, behind the scenes? I think they did fall apart from behind the scenes. We'll, we'll never know the, the true detail of it unless someone commits it to paper. I think what we're seeing with him is is this unfortunate habit, and I'm sure it's one he's looking to to end himself, is that the third season is often the last for him. Mm. Um, there's a, a, a famed former Benfica coach, Bella Gutman, who said that you should never stay longer than three years because mm-hmm. at that point people stop listening to you and they stop taking your ideas in. I think the problem with with Mourinho is is that so much of his career, <clears throat> excuse me, has been founded on the notion of us against them, and mm-hmm, right. forming a very hard division line between those outside of the group and those inside of the group. And I think once doubt starts to creep into that internal circle or that inner circle, excuse me, then it starts to have a destabilizing effect on everybody because those who were once fighting for the cause and, and rowing that boat are no longer trying to do that. And that's the problem with Mourinho is that you look at the things like the Eva Canera situation, they were all just distractions. And, and so often he will use those kind of things to, to distract from his team's failures. But I don't think it worked this time. I think for the first time in his career in England, journalists maybe weren't as uh, enamored or kind of enticed or seduced by his little media games. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in fairness, in Italy, they never got on board with it. They they didn't like him for that reason. Not um, not really in Spain either. The way he talked. Yeah, similar story in Spain. I mean, in Italy, the way he talked about Claudio Ranieri as being nearly 70-something when I think he was like 53 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Those kind of things um, did not endear him to the, the local press. For some reason in England, whenever he's done that kind of thing, um, it's it's sort of 
it's got people interested. I think because of the, the salacious nature of the whole thing and, and the way the the English press for the most part operate. The fact that that stopped working this season meant that a large part of his arsenal was now null and void. And it meant that when he did these things, people started to click that actually it was him attempting to to draw attention away from the field. And ultimately it cost him him, him his job and Chelsea a good season. Karthik, I have to give you, Richard, and Lawrence a lot of credit right now because I listen to a lot of soccer podcasts and the three of you were talking about this three-season uh, three thing with Mourinho a long before, long, long before anything really went down with Mourinho. Uh, I remember listening to that episode and rolling my eyes thinking, wow, this is an absurd argument. Mourinho is going to stay at Chelsea. He's going to build his dynasty. But that didn't happen. And what I want to ask you is, we make the comparison between Mourinho and Sir Alex all the time. I think there is some good rationale for why that argument is a fair one. But as Chris pointed out, his his man management skills really is the us against them mentality. So why yeah. was Sir Alex able to create a dynasty for 26 years, whereas for Mourinho, it falls apart in two or three? Mourinho... Um has a, the, these personal flaws, this, this need to uh, to shift accountability, shift blame. I think it's also the error we're talking about. Uh, uh, Sir Alex came of age in the late 80s. He was given time. He was given six seasons to win uh, a league title. He was uh, now a couple competitions, Manchester United, which were more important in those days. It's important for younger fans to realize that. Winning the FA Cup in 1990, as they did in the final of recruitment. We heard a lot about that this week. Uh, in those days, was was kind of co-equivalent to winning the league. Uh, these days, it's it's just it's it's a throwaway for so many sides. Right. Uh, to the point where the League Cup, which was the throwaway competition then, is now viewed in many Premier League circles as kind of co-equals with the FA Cup. So it's important to note that the FA Cup as a uh, metric has faded. Uh, that might have been what gave Sir Alex more time, in addition to his uh, his ability to. N- navigate the choppy waters of, of, of English football. By the time his confrontations with the media and players became legendary, they had already won several titles, and the club was um, very much made in his image. Now, I have to say, Chelsea itself has been made in Mourinho's image since Mourinho right. first arrived. Uh, there's this complex around Chelsea supporters, this complex around Chelsea players, the best example applied by John Terry, this kind of victimization, us-against-them complex that never, never Never left the club when Mourinho left the first time. That just persisted through the reins of, of managers such as Carlo Ancelotti that had completely different management and personal styles than Mourinho. Uh, this this persisted. And then when uh, Andre Villas-Boas uh, made the decision to try and uh, uh, change the culture of the club, uh, it was he, not the players, who were ushered out. It was he who was gone after six months. So uh, Mourinho's legacy at Chelsea, the Mourinho era at Chelsea, in fact, lasted from uh, the moment he walked through the door replacing Claudio Ranieri in 2004 until uh, December of 2015. Uh, so it was a rally in 11 or 12 year era. Now he, as an individual, wasn't there the whole, whole time, but I think um, it, it's difficult to put things in these three year windows with him as far as Chelsea's concerned. Now, as far as his other clubs, uh, it's it's very a poignant thing. And I, I want to give credit to uh, NBC Sports' Kyle Martino with this uh, discussion, the, the three year uh, issue, because it's come up in the past, but I hadn't really processed and thought about it until he explained it in, I think, the preseason show or maybe the first match week after the Eva Canero thing and, and, and Swansea, that this happens with Mourinho every three years. And when Martino said 
said that, I said, oh, let me think a little bit more about this. And then realized what he was saying was very valid. I uh, brought it up on the podcast, and Richard and Lawrence had thought about it, too, and it agreed with me. So that's sort of how it happened. So let's give credit. We give so much credit to NBC Sports. <laughs> I would generally yeah. cover so much in the States. Here's another uh, tip of the hat to Kyle Martino on that one. Tip of the hat and tip of the hair gel to that beautiful hair that Kyle Martino has. <laughs> Uh, so, Chris, let's talk about w- one more thing about Chelsea here. The question again with Chelsea now with Conte coming in is there's another new style of manager. Uh, maybe the, the man management style is a little bit Mourinho, maybe Mourinho uh, turned up 10x. But st- uh, uh, from a stylized way, what kind of do you see the same group of players that he has there? Uh, we know that Hazard will leave, but as you asked me last week, Terry is staying, so I was wrong about that. Uh, Hazard will probably leave. We are hearing links of Costa leaving. So uh, is this a season of turnover for Chelsea, or is there is it going to be a more gentle transition for Conte? No, I think it'll be quite a sharp con- uh, turnover in that sense. Uh, the one thing I think he will likely be tasked with doing is integrating more of those young players. There's about 34, I think, that spent the season out on loan. Some of them... <laughs> I know you. Uh, yeah. I, again, some of them don't have futures. It goes without saying. I think the likes of Charlie Masonda Jr., I think Andreas Christensen, um, perhaps Dom Solanke, if they can agree a new contract with him, Lewis Baker. These are players, along with the likes of Loftus-Cheek, um, who was already in the squad, that can be part of the new... Matt Miaska, Matt Miaska, Matt Miaska, Matt Miaska, Matt Miaska, Matt Miaska. Yeah, I think we need to see more of Matt, to be honest, before we can come to that conclusion. But the thing that you will get with Conte, I think, is a real energy. Because on the one hand, he didn't really know how to game-manage Juventus that well, in the sense that they would always romp to the league, but they would never have enough to do it in the Champions League. And as we've seen with Max Allegri coming in, they their game management has improved to the point where they were able to get to the, the Champions League final and win the league in his first season. I don't think Chelsea are drastically worried about the Champions League in the same way that they were, right. um, say, 12 months ago. I think at this point, they should be happy to be in the thing, never mind trying to win it. And that's what Conte to me will bring. I don't think he's as married to this 3-5-2 as people keep saying he is. I actually think he's a lot more flexible than that. He'll give he'll give you a 4-4-2. He'll try different formations. But I think the one thing you can say with a certainty is that he will bring an energy and an intensity that I think Chelsea lacked last season. And uh, Karthik, let's talk about ex-Chelsea uh, player, now manager of Stoke City, Mark Hughes. Um, we should have a short conversation about this with not a lot of details to get into because we've covered the, the gist of it. But an overarching question that I have is, do you think Stoke City have overachieved this season or did you expect them to finish as high as ninth ahead of Chelsea? No, I, I expected them to finish sixth or seventh. I actually picked okay. them to finish that high in my preseason uh, uh, projection. Now, of course, I had Leicester lower, I had Southampton lower, uh, and I had West Ham lower. So you, you can see that they basically finished... The teams that finished ahead of them were teams I thought they would finish ahead of them. I just thought they would finish ahead of. I thought Southampton would take a dip this season. Uh, I I felt like uh, uh, Everton. I didn't have much faith in because of Martinez, and um, and then I didn't, West Ham and Leicester were big surprises. So they finished, I guess, given the surprise uh, packages of uh, Leicester and and uh, West Ham. I can't be as harsh on the ninth place finish as I want to be. At the same time. There was a lack of consistency they had in a different kind of way that 
same sort of uh, uh, back-and-forth season that Norwich did, where uh, they would win a number of games on the trot or get a big number of results on the trot and then just look awful for a month. And that's um, that's a problem of teams that, uh, with teams that Sparky manages, going back to uh, his days at Blackburn. So uh, I'm not sure. They, they, spend, they have a lot of uh, high-profile players now on that side. They've tried to transform the way they play. Uh, when it comes down to it, they're still having to become pragmatic and play in a Pulis-esque style at times in order to get results. So that's that's worrying. Uh, they didn't get as much out of Shakiri as we would have liked to have seen. Uh, Bolyan has um, has had a, a number of injuries to deal with, but he, he's uh, he's good when he's fit. And uh, as for their other big signings, you know, they've been there's been just a lot of hit or miss and, and guys that are. Uh, not consistent. Yeah, I think that's well said, Karthik. So uh, we will see if that uh, the, the stylistic change does occur next season because, as we mentioned on the podcast, towards the end of the season, it was more of the old-school Stoke in terms of uh, su- uh, with successful but uh, long-term, uh, long term, uh, long uh, ball football. So uh, the evolution, quote unquote, continues. Let's talk about Liverpool, Chris, another team that's going through an evolution of its own. I obviously follow Liverpool fairly closely for my other beloved ULF podcast. Uh, and I talked to my good friend Gabe about this all the time. And we were sitting uh, at the bar yesterday while watching the United game, uh, the FA Cup game, and we were talking about Liverpool a little bit. And he made a very astute observation, I think. Uh, and he was talking about the season and he said that the issue obviously Rogers getting fired and all that stuff is is in the past but the the what he's seen under Klopp is that he's seen in 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 specific games he's seen one part of the puzzle but everything hasn't come together and a perfect example of this was the Dortmund game uh, the Dortmund games I should say because in the first leg they were brilliant defensively uh, one of the best defensive performances I've seen and then in the second leg it was a brilliant offensive performance but as the final showed, in, in fact, in, even the two halves in the final showed, uh, the Europa League final, that is, that they cannot put it together for 90 minutes. And that is the concern right now for Liverpool. It really is. I think what you would say, though, is that Klopp hasn't had really a lot of the preparation time. He's come in at a point where the, the, the season is already underway, the players are already signed. I think you have to give him the opportunity to, mm-hmm. to work with these sure. players during a preseason um, when you can introduce ideas in a more relaxed and staggered way. Um, obviously, the, the, the situation with uh, Brendan Rodgers was difficult. I think everyone will agree with that. It was unfortunate for him to leave the football club because I think he showed a lot of respect and appreciation for the opportunity he was given. Um, but I th- think moving forward, you, you take the positive that Klopp is there and Klopp is someone that already seems to be getting the most out of some players that I think maybe weren't as suited to the, the Brendan Rodgers methodology. He already seems a better fit with the FEM transfer committee. So I think for, for that, you have to take a positive from it. Karthik, I think uh, Brendan Rodgers should deserve, does deserve a lot of credit. I think he's become a bit of a, uh, a joke figure around Liverpool circles. And I think that's very unfair. Uh, I think to, to suggest that all of the success he had was just because of Suarez uh, is unfair. And I think a lot of the things that we're seeing good under Klopp, some of the the, uh, the youth players that are thriving under Klopp, I think a lot of that credit should go to Rodgers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he 
mean, guys like Raheem Sterling that have moved on, youth players right. like that. So uh, I, I think certainly uh, when you look at the situation as it is currently Liverpool, they're in better shape when Klopp took over from Rodgers than when Rodgers took over from Daglish. Definitely. And that's even with uh, Luis Suarez on that side, mm-hmm. in, in that side. So I, I think it's uh, unfortunate that Liverpool fans have, have chosen to mock him. I think part of it had to do with his persona, his press conferences, yeah. the, the things he would say after games, um, his lack of charisma. So that's, lack of, um, Some might say lack of character. Yeah, right, yeah. So <laughs> I... I I I, I I certainly feel for him, and I and I agree with you on that. Uh, we'll see next season. I think Liverpool could be very good next season yeah. if Klopp gets a full full summer and is able to maintain the levels of fitness that he'd like to see from this squad. Or it might just be a situation that he, that he he needs to clear clear it out and bring in new players. And if that that happens, it might take a bit longer for him to get this thing uh, really ramped up. Karthik, I'm going to stick with you. So. Uh, if you see a Klopp type system here, uh, tell me a player that, or a couple of player, a couple of positions, I guess, that Klopp will be looking at. For me, it's definitely central defense one, and then maybe two solid central midfielders are uh, missing at Liverpool right now. Yeah, although we saw in the Europa League f- final that uh, uh, central defense wasn't as much of a concern as left fullback. Uh, Colatore actually right. had one Moreno, of his best yeah. games in years. Uh, but it, it didn't matter. He was playing left center back, and he hung out to dry right, repeatedly by the, the poor play of the, of the left back of Moreno. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yes, it would be center back and central midfield getting a more active, two-way pressing player. Uh, I, I know this is going to be cliche at, at this point, or a new cliche, but a Conte type in, in central midfield, a guy that that can play both ways. Uh, uh, will be uh, always uh, looking to intercept the ball. Doesn't necessarily. Have to be a hard tackler, but a guy whose positioning sense is good, but then can lead lead a team on the break, uh, can can push uh, push forward. You're your prototypical box to box type midfielder, or Michael Essien, if you want to talk about a player right. from uh, the the not so distant past. That kind of player uh, fits perfectly in Klopp's system. Uh, that's what a lot of what Gundawan did at uh, at Dortmund, and then uh, those those two strong central defenders, including a ball playing central defender. Uh, a Mats Hummels type. Uh, now, I'm sorry, I keep using Dortmund players, but that's the most <laughs> obvious example with, with Klopp. Uh, those sorts of players is what he, he wants. So he'll want one ball-playing defender next to a guy who's an out-and-out ball winner as his other center back. Uh, if it's uh, if it's Lovren, then he's going to need an out-and-out ball winner. Now, the question is about Sacco and this drug situation, because I right. think Sacco was emerging as a guy that would have started and Klopp would not need to replace um, and unfortunately, the suspension took place. It turned out Torre slotted in and, and played played nicely, uh, but they still need to upgrade that position if Sako was out. Uh, then you've got uh, the left-back situation, which has to be addressed, and that's been a, a problem for years for Liverpool, going back to when uh, they they uh, took Jose Enrique from uh, Newcastle, and he never replicated his Newcastle form at Liverpool in, in now uh, five seasons since then, five or six seasons. So it's... Um, that that's a real problem position for them, Chris. Let's talk about West Ham uh, finishing seventh. I think uh, it's, I, I think we'll all agree that's an excellent season for West Ham. They they will feel a little disappointed missing out Europe, but overall a lot of progress. When you look at the likes of how how good Payet was this season, uh, a lot of players on that team will be 
will be looked at by other teams around them uh, in terms of top five, top ten teams, and uh, it'll be it'll be a a struggle, maybe not a struggle, but a focus for West Ham is actually holding on to those players and continuing to build what was a very good squad this season. I don't think the struggle will be will be that hard. I mean, they've got the Olympic Stadium to move into. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got increased TV revenue to spend now. I think the, the bigger challenge for them is finding the players to come in. Um, there are definitely issues in that squad. There are definitely ways it can be improved. Um, Tell me how. I think it's it's being smart with, with that money. I think they could use someone a little bit more dynamic behind Dimitri Payet. Um, the likes of Pedro Obiang, I've not been that convinced on. I think Chiate does a job. Mark Noble is, is again, solid. Someone out wide as well, for me personally. I think Antonio offers them one thing, but a little bit of balance on that other side. Someone who's quite dangerous. And then possibly a, a really high-quality striker. Um, because my concern would be that Diafra Sacco is, is a little bit too inconsistent to be mm. relied on for what they need. I think this is the, the, the important thing to remember. I'm not saying he's a bad player. I'm more saying that is he the calibre of, of what West Ham are trying to achieve, which I think at this precise moment is Champions League football um, and, and rightly so because again they push hard for this season this was not a, a, a two week campaign to get into the Champions League for West Ham they really did go hard for it um, and I think what they've shown in, in getting Pye is that yes I, I think he was convinced more by the money and the scenery rather than the football club if we're being brutally honest that's not always a terrible thing though. if that can get them to sign that can get them to sign, accept it, embrace it, and move forward with it. And I think that's what West Ham did. Yeah, Karthik Southampton, who finished sixth, have a bit of a uh, different problem. They, they don't have London to, uh, to, to seduce players with, but their style of football is definitely seducing players and fans from all over the world. Uh, and outside of Leicester City, I think they are the story of the season uh, in terms of uh, what they were able to produce. As low as 15th at one point, incredible towards the end. Uh, I think their style of football is one of the best. I think uh, we have found out that there's some quality players on that team. They made some shrewd transfer moves. Uh, Van Dijk from Celtic is one that comes to mind. And then uh, they've had they've been able to have players perform at different positions at different times in the season. So a huge, huge, huge season for Southampton. Yeah, Van Dijk might be the non-Leicester or Spurs player of the season in the Premier League. Uh, but him and Payet would be the two I, I would put in that category, the best player that didn't play for one of those two teams in the league. Eighth, seventh, sixth. Now, the last three seasons for Southampton. They are a top uh, half fixture now, believe it or not. Their uh, scouting network uh, under Ronald Koeman is immense in Europe. They're finding guys on the continent at, in second tier leagues at se- or at second tier clubs that fit the bill. Uh, Saido Mane coming from uh, Red Bull Salzburg. You talk about Van Dyke coming from Scotland. Uh, Graziano Pella coming from the, the Dutch league. Uh, same thing with uh, 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 Tadic uh, coming from, from uh, uh, the continent. I mean, he's found players to replace the guys they've sold. Uh, high profile English players who'd come out of their academy or had been uh, bought at a young age. And um, it's, uh, it's just a a very, very good story. I think they're just going to continue to to, to be a strong side. Uh, it looks like they're going to uh, keep Kuman. So uh, do they push for the top four next season? 
it's possible. I mean, I know there's a lot of talk of, uh, well, next year the top four will be pretty straightforward because Pep Guardiola is going to Manchester City and uh, Mourinho appears to be headed to Manchester United. No, I think those two teams both have a lot of uh, rebuilding to do and retooling to do. Just simply changing the manager doesn't accomplish a whole lot. And we'll talk about that when we get to those clubs. Southampton very, very much could push for Champions League next season, as could West Ham, who, who you just discussed with Chris. Chris, the, I, can, I cannot even understand how Southampton continues to do this. They've essentially lost an entire first 11 in the last two years, and yet they keep managing to successfully integrate other players. Uh, they keep managing to promote their own youth players, uh, academy players, and I think pretty much every team, every mid-level team or every uh, promoted team should be looking at Southampton as one of the greatest success stories uh, in the Premier League in terms of what they are able to do every season. I think what you have to say is it's immense preparation. Um, their, their sort of awareness to have plans, backup plans, plans after that, players to come in. They've got this famed scouting system um, or a, a machine that I believe is called the black box that you're not actually allowed to see. Um, I think NBC did a documentary down there and they weren't allowed inside. They could, You could see the actual console, but they wouldn't let you see it at work is what I mean is it just um, a bunch of guys again, playing football manager <laughs> I wish um, <laughs> how do you apply for that job <laughs> um, I think what you have to say is, is that they identify the kind of player they want relative to the style they want and they find him so Jordi Klasser they, they knew what they wanted from their midfielder and they found him and went and bought him um, I would like to see them have stability now personally I would like to see them not lose the players um, right. and get the opportunity to build something instead of having to constantly start from the ground floor again um, because I think that would be an exciting moment not just for the fans but for the Premier League as well because it means they could really achieve something significant on top of, of what they've already done. Yeah, one of the players that they'll be really trying to get a, uh, keep a hold of is Sadio Mane who, uh, will, who is angling for a move to one of the next five clubs we'll be discussing. So when we come back, gentlemen, for Section 4, we'll talk about Man United, Man City, Spurs, Arsenal, and Leicester City. So stay tuned for the final section of the season review of the World Soccer Talk podcast. We'll be right back. Section 4, guys, uh, we'll start with Man United. Uh, FA Cup winners now and it's a huge moment for the club uh it's been a while since we won the fa cup carrick and wayne rooney had never won one uh, and really the only club trophy they hadn't won so huge credit to van hall and karthik let me start with this as a man united supporter obviously i have shared my views on louis van hall but i thought it to be massively disrespectful uh to van hall that instead of celebrating what should be widely recognized as his, as the first trophy for Man United after Sir Alex left. Uh, uh, still a big trophy, not the biggest, obviously, FA Cup. But instead of celebrating this moment, he was immediately peppered uh, with questions about the fact that Mourinho will probably be taking over as manager of Manchester. Right, right, right. And this is this is a moment where he uh, he, he had made the substitution to bring Jesse Lingard on, and he had right. gotten that brilliant winner uh, down to 10 men. And he and Ryan Giggs, you saw conferring, might be Giggs' last game too, knowing uh, the way Mourinho operates. So um, that's uh, this is what Jose Mourinho does, Manchester United fans and you you guys no no insult to Chelsea supporters but I think on the whole Manchester City supporters are more seasoned they have more perspective they're more they have more of a world view and they're more 
I hate to use the term sophisticated. Man on the United, whole, there are Man obviously United individual examples. Man United, United you mean, that, right? Yeah, Man United supporters are more okay. uh, are more are, are more uh, sophisticated, worldly, etc. than Chelsea fans. On, on the whole, I'm not saying individual cases. I know there are exceptions to all these these generalizations. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what you have a taste of. Mourinho this week up the ante, started talking to PSG. I uh, had George, uh, uh, George Mendes link his players, including Thomas Rodriguez, with Manchester United if Jose Mourinho gets the job. This is what he does. And for a club of Manchester United's size, stature, and global reputation, um, unless sir, he has such respect for Sir Alex Ferguson and he's going to change his behavior, and it's hard, hard to see a Tiger changing his stripes when he's been the same Tiger at, at the last four or five clubs he's managed, uh, this is a taste of what you get. He undermined the 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 Manchester United squad and the narrative, and used the uh, the media as he often does in Britain as his ally. This week, in undermining Louis Van Gaal's greatest triumph as Manchester United manager, yeah. this yeah. is what Mourinho does. So, uh, my my views on Mourinho are well established. I'm disappointed in Manchester United that they would appoint him if they wanted to sack Van Gaal. I, I wish they had looked at uh, other alternatives, but uh, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, Chris, the problem is, here's the problem for Man United. With Pep going to City, with Klopp at Liverpool, with Simeone staying at Atletico, um, there's really not, a Pochettino staying at Spurs, there's really no one that really could take over for Van Hall. And if you stick with Van Hall, the problem has been what we've seen all season, right, Chris, where we've seen a poor style of football, we've seen an over-reliance on David De Gea, uh, and if... Van Hall does stay. An argument, I guess, an argument can be made that his third season was always going to be the best season based on what happened at Bayern, etc. But at the end of the day, if you're looking at, if if you're in the results business, which I think, unfortunately, Man United, uh, in spite of the fact that we consider ourselves to be this this historic club, uh, at the end of the day, now we are a results business. We are about sponsorships. If you are a results business then you need Mourinho because he will deliver results as opposed to Van Hall, who might deliver results and a better style of football and is probably a better manager, all things considered. I think <clears throat> the thing is, for, for everyone who says that Man United missed out on Champions League to goal difference, they spent a, an obscene amount of money. Right. An obscene amount of money. And... They have someone like Memphis Depay who doesn't even make the squad for the FA Cup, who Van Hal has marginalised in the worst and most destructive ways possible. Um, I think, honestly, he's been incredibly poor. And for all the talk of the fine margins, etc., and the fact that I saw someone who is, is quite heavily involved in Adelaide saying that he was essentially making up for the fact that the squad was quite young and, and building a defensive base to begin with, he had the money to spend. This is this is the thing that the, the star from this season, Martial aside, is Marcus Rashford, who was at the club already. Mm-hmm. To me, that's not acceptable for the amount of money they've spent and invested. And they've wasted a lot of money. They've bought the likes of Schweinsteiger, who I think was was far too old to be moving to a league like the Premier League, personally. Um, and that's before we even get into the fact that Michael Carrick's already at that football club, who is a really underrated midfielder, I think. He's a wonderfully gifted midfielder. And I think, honestly, while I don't appreciate or admire the way that Van Hall looks like leaving the club in terms of they wasn't even given the day of the FA Cup to enjoy, 
I do think it's the right decision to get rid of them. And I do think that anyone thinking otherwise is being quite ignorant to the money he has wasted. And I use the term wasted yeah. at that football club. Karthik, uh, I think the mistake was yeah. letting David, Moy- David Moyes to go, go, go uh, to begin with. Personally, I, and I agree with Chris. All his critiques of uh, Van Hall, I agree with. And I, I share. I just think the guy they're bringing in is the wrong guy. It, it, it's as simple as that. But, and that who, it's going to. Would, you might right win now, who else something in the next. But, well, maybe Ryan Giggs or, or some other uh, manager that's a, that's a hot young manager that, that, that can be groomed. Uh, maybe you go after Ronald DeBoer. Uh, at, at this point, uh, maybe you do something to tempt Simeone, or you should have gone after Antonio Conte if you wanted an established name. Uh, he's going to Chelsea instead. We didn't mention that in the Chelsea uh, section, but uh, I, I, Mourinho is destructive, and his his uh, personality doesn't jive with what we perceive as Manchester Manchester United is as a club. Maybe that's evolving. I understand it's a new world uh, in football, but he. Uh, uh, he fits a Chelsea, and I, I went through why he fit Chelsea earlier. I don't think he fits Manchester United, and I'm very concerned about Manchester United's global um, reputation and global footprint with supporters and likability with supporters, uh, Mourinho coming in. And unless, again, he has such – I've heard this theory from some people who share my view of Mourinho but say it'll be different at Manchester United because he has such respect for Sir Alex – that he won't act out the way he did at Real Madrid or at Inter or at uh, Chelsea in, in his two stints there. Perhaps that's possible. Maybe maybe it's uh, he'll behave himself and he'll truly be the happy one this time. But uh, I just think he's the wrong guy. I think he's the wrong guy for any club that has the purported values that Manchester United has. Yeah, unfortunately, I think we, we might be talking about two different things because w- – I agree with the global brand of Manchester United reported to have 600 million fans over, around the world, which is probably very untrue because that means one out of every 10 human beings is a Man United fan, which is crazy. But, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, but point is that the global brand, unfortunately, a lot of the global brand is built on success, uh, whereas I think the biggest impact will be on the recognition of Manchester United in England because once Mourinho takes over, which I guess is inevitable at this point, um, it is going to be the final nail in the coffin in terms of this idea of Manchester United being this club that cares about history and cares about uh, their fans, uh, etc. Because once Mourinho takes over, it will be the final conversion of what is already a clear indication that Manchester United is as much of a mercenary club as Man City is or Chelsea are, uh, unfortunately. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if if Manchester United fans uh, continue to... Say, well, we're different. Uh, Man, United, Man City is a plastic club. Uh, folks, uh, you, you've lost the argument now. Mourinho is your manager, and, and it appears imminent. And as a Manchester City supporter, I've always um, looked at, at Manchester United with a certain degree of envy. That's why I called my book Blue with Envy. Envy is a reference to Man United. Nice little uh, I don't envy a club that, has, that brings in Jose Mourinho and the kind of circus he brings in. I, I don't want that at my club. It'll be the first time I don't look at Manchester United with any envy and just look at them as ah, you know, they're, they're noisy neighbors because you will truly be noisy neighbors with Mourinho. Yeah. yeah, let's no talk doubt about that. Let's go away from my mercenaries, Karthik. Let's go to your mercenaries. Uh, <laughs> you, you're, you guys spent a lot of money as well, but it's important to note that you guys were the most injury ravaged team in the Premier League. You guys had 51 injuries, had more people on that, uh, on that recovery bench for more time than any team this season. Uh, and that affected you. And we saw that once De Bruyne came back. Uh, that you guys were a different beast. So uh, 
having said that, finishing fourth, getting to the semifinal of the Champions League, winning a Capital Cup, probably a fair season when you look at where Man City were 10 years ago, but probably a disappointment where you look at where Man City were three seasons ago. Yeah, it was at this point where Manchester City were three seasons ago, no doubt about that. I, I don't know that it's a disappointment given um, the circumstances of the season and, mm-hmm. and a season where uh, we entered the year. Now, granted, we entered the season De Bruyne not having been bought yet, and De Bruyne was bought August uh, 25th or so, although the rumors were out there. Uh, before the De Bruyne purchase, looking at the team, not thinking it, thinking it might be a team that falls out of the top four, quite frankly. And um, I'm very happy with the job. Manuel Pellegrini did. I, I think he was uh, completely disrespected by the club's hierarchy. Speaking of mercenaries, uh, Soriano and, and Bergiristan are mercenaries that have come from Barcelona. Now they brought Pep, who's a mercenary, in to manage the side uh, with a, a number of mercenary players. Uh, the one thing that had been really likable about Manchester City the last few seasons had been that even though you had this pushback from fans of other clubs, especially Manchester City, uh, United, about the amount of money Manchester City had spent, the core of the team, the spine of the team, had essentially been the same for five or six seasons. But when you talk about company, uh, collar off at left back, uh, uh, Torre, uh, Silva, uh, Aguero, uh, Samir Nasri, uh, these sorts of players had been, ha- have been the core of Manchester City now uh, since the 2011-12 season. And in fact, in the case of everybody but Aguero on that list since the 10-11 season. Now we're seeing the transition and, and seeing that, kind, that era kind of come to an end. Pellegrini rode that generation as long as he could while the director of football was making bad buys. Uh, uh, bad buy after bad buy over uh, a four-year period. So I think the season was successful, all things considered. Manchester City supporters who have uh, disrespected Manuel Pellegrini, uh, again, have no perspective on football. And uh, they're all talking big. I mean, I get into these Twitter arguments all the time about Pep and how uh, we're going to easily win the league next year because Pep's coming in. You look at the Manchester City squad, realistically, now that we know Mourinho is, is, is going to probably be Manchester United's manager. Do you think Manchester City, if you have even a normal injury record, now this year was a disproportionate number of injuries, a normal injury record, and a normal injury record for Aguero, who, by the way, was fitter this season than any season since his first season at Manchester City. You think Manchester City is a top-four team? I'm not sure. Maybe maybe fourth, maybe fifth. Chris? So I think Pellegrini did okay. I'm, I'm going to pose that question to you straight away. Top, next season, top-four team? I, I think they are. I think they'll probably be title contenders because I think Guardiola is that good of a manager. But Kartik's concerns about that squad are valid because you see someone like Toure, you see some of those other players who are injury-prone. Uh, so y- your thoughts on that, Chris? I think they have to be title contenders. Um, certainly, I mean, I questioned whether the the arrival of Guardiola really destabilised the season. But actually, a lot of City fans tell me that the form was poor before then, and I'm more than willing to uh, divert to wiser heads on that one. I, I think the the sort of the feeling around him arriving, the kind of the the mood about it, the cost as well. They have to be title contenders next year. Um, you look at that squad, it's a very good squad. I think it will need refinement. I think there are certain players that can remain. I'd be curious to see if Guardiola moulds Mangala in the same way that he did Jerome Bo playing at Bayern Munich. I would like to see maybe some of the youngsters coming as well, like Sebastian and Selena. I would be eager to see him given more opportunities. I think what you have to say, though, is they have to be title challenges. There will be some who think we have to win it. I think at this point they have to be up there. 
um, that goes with saying. Karthik Guardiola's big focus will be, again, central midfield, central defense because of Vincent Kompany's injury yeah. issues. Uh, I think up top, they're okay in terms of Aguero, Ehenaccio. Um Silva maybe has another good season in him. Nasri, mm. we believe, will... I think Nasri on. will... I think Nasri might be the guy that benefits okay. from Guardiola coming in. So you, you uh, think actually, he'll stay he might, at Silva, And I think Silva will be moved on. I, I, that's okay. just a hunch I have. Okay. Okay, so, I, so because I think if Nasri's fit, he fits kind of, and he's younger, he fits what Gordiola wants to do. Um, although I think Gordiola might just play De Bruyne centrally and be done with it. That's that's possible also, mm-hmm. right? And right. Silva's like, kept as a backup, and and uh, Nasri's moved on. Yeah, I, I I like the shot from Chris on on uh, Jerome Boateng and, and Mangala. I've made that comparison myself. I think he Mangala is one player who will benefit from Pep coming in. Look, I'm not disrespecting Pep. I, I just think that. There's a lot that needs to be overhauled in the squad, and I think Pellegrini did not do as bad a job as people think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know what? The only people who have, who have this assessment of Pellegrini are Manchester City supporters. Right. Nobody else in English football has assessed Pellegrini the way Manchester City supporters have. So uh, perhaps uh, the Blues supporters are wrong. Uh, you know, I'm just saying that. You can say, well, we watch our club more closely than others. But I, I don't. Uh, I, I find it very uh, – I, I, there are certain games where I think Pellegrini made, made mistakes and mismanaged the team. But uh, um, that happens with every manager. You can right. even say that about Sir Alex in some matches. Mm-hmm. I, I find it very hard to find many pieces of evidence that he did a bad job this season. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think maybe Nasri's a guy. Uh, if you're looking for a surprise of a guy that hangs around, maybe he's a guy. Yeah, makes sense. And I totally agree with you with Pellegrini. I think some of the vitriol from Man City supporters, probably recent Man City supporters, has been very surprising and very disappointing. Let's talk about a manager that... Almost everyone agrees is is doing a terrific job, except maybe Arsenal fans. Uh, we're talking Pochettino at Tottenham. Um, but Chris, you brought up something. We've talked about these 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 uh, these trends with managers, and we talked about it with Pardew the second half of the season syndrome. We've talked about it with Mourinho the third season syndrome. So Pochettino, you brought this up a few weeks ago, the end of season collapse. Tell me more about that. Is, is this a serious concern for Tottenham going forward? I wouldn't say serious. I think it is a concern because look, it's happened now for him at Southampton. It's also happened at Tottenham. I, I was talking to a Spurs fan recently um, and I asked them if, if perhaps they would like a, an Edgar Davids type signing in the, the off-season. And I say that because years ago, Davids came to Spurs and he just brought a, an experience and a, and a calm to a group that I think Spurs could do with now. Um, the fact that they lost their head so spectacularly at Stamford Bridge, that to me says that the, the team just needs a few more characters in there just to keep their heads sort of calm when, when things get above them. Again, people have, have said, oh, it's a terrible season because Spurs didn't win the league and, and Leicester did and they didn't finish above Arsenal. I think that ignores the progress they've made personally. They found a spot for uh, Eric Lamella in that team, which mm-hmm. again, did not look likely 12 months ago. I think it, they managed to maintain the form of Harry Kane. They've built a team that is, is dynamic and exciting to watch. But then also, on top of that, they're also managing to um, integrate the next generation and bring in young players who can theoretically be at that club for a number of years now. I think the summer for them is an interesting one in the sense that we'll see how they spend their money because quite consistently these last sort of few years, they've bought players with potential to grow. 
they've not really been the type of team, at least in in my uh, opinion, that's bought the ready-made star. And I think perhaps going down that route and deciding to just buy someone who is brilliant in that moment and doesn't need tutelage could be an interesting diversion for them and, and could potentially push them up to the next level. Karthik, I, I know this won't be a popular opinion, but maybe some credit needs to be given to Daniel Levy as well. Because of the fact that he has managed to jack up the prices for Spurs players so high for uh, in previous seasons, I and given how well Spurs did this season, I don't see them losing any of the players that in previous seasons would have been a sure shot out of Tottenham. I don't see Harry Kane leaving, even if they're off, you know, they're, they're probably going to want like more than bail money for Kane, which no one's going to pay. I don't see Lloris leaving. Uh, last season, he was linked with uh, with United if De Gea left. I don't see Dele Alli leaving. I don't see any of those crucial players in that team leaving this summer, which bodes really well for Spurs. Correct. Absolutely. And he allowed Pochettino to do his job. They didn't panic buying Jerry. January. There wasn't the great drama there was always between him and Redknapp on, on transfer deadline day, uh, partly done by Redknapp's publicist to milk coverage on Sky Sports, I believe, <laughs> knowing, uh, knowing Harry the way we, we all do. Uh, I, I thought that they were pretty drama-less Spurs this season, and they did a job. Now, uh, the final table will, re- will reflect that they finished below Arsenal, but the reality of the campaign is that they pushed for the title and Arsenal did not. Keep that in mind. Right. I, I like where Spurs are. I love Pochettino as a manager, as I know Chris does. Chris was the first guy who sold me on Pochettino uh, many years ago when he left Espanol and, and came to England. So I, I think they're well-positioned. I think they're one of the title favorites for next season. Uh, the, the dip at the end of the season bothers me, but it partly happened with Dembele out of the team, and I think he's such a critical cog in how they play. And we saw that when he wasn't really... they were as good as anyone in, in, in English football and probably a top 10 team in Europe. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I think that went back to that uh, that acrimonious Spurs-Chelsea game, which uh, derailed them a little bit. So yeah, that, that's a good point. That, that, yeah, their that spirit sh- was broken yeah. after that. And, they, and we talked all season long about how young Spurs were compared right. to the other teams in the top half of the table. Mm-hmm. The, the, there are these moments, these growing moments for young sides. Right. Now, if Arsenal fans want to take uh, great... Uh, a solace and comfort in uh, that moment and that they finished ahead of them, go ahead and do it. They, you finish second, they finish third. Good for you guys. Uh, chances are they'll win a title before you. Right. Chris, I'm let, sorry, let, I just have to say that. I agree with you. Chris, let's let's talk about Arsenal. In my notes, I've written line after line after and paragraph after paragraph for multiple teams. In my notes for Arsenal, I wrote one word, and that's poor. And yet they've managed to finish second. So how, how do we analyze this season for Arsenal? Because as Karthik said, everyone uh, who is uh, an Arsenal supporter is celebrating the fact that they finished ahead of Spurs. But Arsenal fans and Arsenal are becoming a bit of a mockery of themselves with this this analysis. That oh, It's very reductionist analysis. I think you can look at this from, from very different and very contrasting angle and so yes they finished second but this was the best chance they've had in years to win the Premier League title in the sense that so many of their rivals managed to put holes in their own boat that really given the lack of change and this is why I say it's so contrasting because my argument on a 
on the Football Republic was that there wasn't chronic change in the squad, there wasn't an overhaul, and that consequently there shouldn't be any reason why Arsenal couldn't have won the league this season, and actually they should have won the league this season. And one of the commenters wrote that, well, you know, with Arsenal, and I'm paraphrasing, I admit, with Arsenal, you know, they only signed Petr Cech, so really the fact they finished second was really quite impressive. And that's exactly what I mean, is that you can interpret it entirely your own way. I think personally it's been a really bad season for Arsenal because I think they let themselves down in the Champions League once again. I also think that they should have won the Premier League. No ifs, no ands, no buts. And this is the issue with Arsene Wenger. And you could argue Arsenal as a football club is that they consistently show too much loyalty to the wrong people in the sense that they've given the likes of Walcott, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Flamini. These players have had had far too many opportunities to show they can be title winners and the calibre needed to win a title. And they simply aren't. And they've been outdone by a group of individuals in Leicester City with none of that experience, with arguably none of that pedigree. And that is damning to me. And it's damning to Arsene Wenger as well. And I think you have to be careful now because you're damaging his legacy as well at that football club. As someone that came in and was an innovator and moved them forward and pushed them forward and has consistently kept them in the top four, I think that's that's fantastic. I think the the, the opportunity now and the and the the point in the club's history and trajectory comes where it has to be changed because simply finishing fourth for an Ars- for a club like Arsenal with their ambitions is not acceptable. It's not. It should not be considered um, a success to finish fourth for Arsenal. Karthik, one of the things that uh, we should talk about with Wenger is uh, in order to be a top-level manager, you have to have a, a certain amount, a, a lot of self-belief in your decisions because any de- good, any big decision you make, at least 50% of the people in the world will disagree with you about that decision. So you have to have a lot of self-belief. So when you look at the decisions Wenger has made uh, with the personnel he signed, with his desire to not overspend on players, which, by the way, is something Sir Alex did for the longest time. And Sir Alex is considered as one of the greatest managers of all time. So how do we, how do we analyze this? Do, do we say Wenger is, was a great manager, but he's stuck in time? Or do we give him credit and say, look, he's shown it before uh, that, that it does work and maybe it will next season uh, which it probably won't. <laughs> I, I agree with every, every word Chris just uh, articulated about this situation. Uh, those are my views completely, including, and in, in this in reference to your question, the loyalty to certain players like Oxley, Chamberlain, and uh, uh, Walcott, Rosicki, who didn't play it at all. I don't think played a minute this season. Uh, those sorts of players who've been with the club now forever. Uh, Walcott has been with the club for 10 and a half seasons. When in modern football do you see such an average player played for a club of Arsenal stature for 10 seasons in the modern game. Just think about that. Put that in perspective. Uh, I I think it's um, uh, now 10 and a half seasons, right? Because he he captained the team um, against Chelsea on on his 10th anniversary. And, of course, as as is typical when they play Chelsea, they imploded and lost at home in that match. So uh, there's a... um, there's a malaise at the club. There's uh, an acceptance of uh, of this sort of uh, these sort of performances. And I thought the, the the supporters' base at Arsenal had finally definitively turned against Wenger because of Leicester's success this season, Spurs pushing for the title, and uh, the, the open door that was there for the title, as as Chris talked about. And then suddenly, because Spurs collapsed at the end of the season when there was nothing on the line for Spurs, they were going to finish second or third anyway. There's no difference in terms 
the Champions League spots, whether you finish second or third. Uh, the difference is if you win a title in first or if you finish fourth and you have to play a qualifying round. So second and third are co-equal positions in, in the hierarchy. When they collapse, all of a sudden uh, Arsenal supporters were articulating, oh, well, we're great. We're in better shape than all these teams. We know Leicester's going to fall off next season, so we're the favorites. So there's a certain degree of denial even when they had gotten their heads around to the, to the correct view. Uh, it's time to move on. Either Wenger moves on or this squad has to be completely refreshed and, and blown up. And if it's completely refreshed and blown up, uh, maybe they'll slip to fourth. But they're finishing fourth every, just about every year anyway. So I don't I don't see what the danger in doing that is. Um, if Wenger leaves, could Arsenal go the way of um, of Manchester United or um, or Chelsea, one of these clubs that have had problems after managers leave, Liverpool after Kenny Daglish left the first time? That, 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 that's a fashionable view, but I think in this Premier League era, with uh, Arsenal being a North London club, being uh, the, having the kind of global footprint they have, and, it, and it's in spite of Manchester United's robust brand, it's still different being in London than being in Manchester in this era. Um, I don't know. I don't think there's as much risk in, in Arsenal parting ways with Wenger as many might think. Uh, I, I, it is possible they finish outside the top four for a season or two, but they're not going to they're not going to fall down to seventh or eighth or tenth and, and be in the situation Manchester United is in right now. I just think the fundamentals of the club are a little different. Yeah, I, I think I, I have to disagree with you guys on that. I, I think if Wenger does leave, there will be a recoil period because just like with Sir Alex, there's a there's a manager who has control of everything at that every single thing at that club, and that that does echo. A couple seasons later, maybe he doesn't have as much control as Sir Alex did, but just about. And and I think it will take some time to turn over that squad because, as we know, uh, multiple players in that uh, the the strength of that squad is that you have players that are interchangeable in the sense that when you have Ox injured, you have Walcott coming in. Uh, or you have Joel Campbell playing that position. But what they don't have is they don't have the standout players from that inter- those interchangeable players. And it will take time uh, to to make that squad work with another manager, especially if it's a manager, as we talked about, uh, like Simeone, who, who plays a totally different kind of football. So let's talk about Leicester City, guys. Chris, uh, obviously... We will learn how Leicester City did this five, six years from now when books have been written, when multiple people have analyzed this. So let's start that conversation uh, with this. And I think, and uh, I, I want to hear what you think, I think this started with Cambiasso. I think last season, having Cambiasso in that team, having a player of his history on, and his his success in the game permeated through quite a few of these players. And, and uh, we know Cambiasso was a big part of uh, keeping Leicester City up last season. He, he scored a couple of vital goals, uh, one against Man United, I remember. Uh, and I wonder if you agree with that, if you, if you think uh, having Cambiasso in the team last season uh, permeated through the squad. That's a very good point. I think what I would say as well, and I'll keep this brief because we could talk hours about Leicester City. They stayed disciplined, they stayed defensive, and they worked as a team. And I think the second that you put teamwork over talent, you're moving towards success. Um, and I give immense credit to Claudio Ranieri. And to to be very honest with you, objectivity flies out the window when I think of Claudio Ranieri because there are certain members in that Leicester squad who aren't the nicest characters in the world. 
But Claudio Ranieri, having been up close to him, having spoken elsewhere about my kind of one experience with him, is one of the nicest people, period. Not in the sport, just period. And I'm mm. delighted that he's had that moment of validation in, in his career and a moment of success that will now mean he's talked about alongside some of the greats. Karthik, we're chatting shit, so we might as well get banged now. Uh, Vardy, amazing season. Uh, Conte, amazing season. So in these one-on-one matchups, as you, as you pointed out, and as Richard pointed out, that has been really the highlight of this season, that multiple players continued to win those one-on-one battles, game in, week in, month in, and season out. Yeah, whoever... Whoever was forced to mark, uh, Mares had trouble. Uh, the the right-sided midfielders and right-sided backs uh, had trouble with Fuchs's uh, overlapping runs uh, when they were timed. And, of course, Fuchs a lot of times was, was not pushing forward because of his defensive responsibilities. Just those one-on-one matchups, always Leicester seemed to be winning. I concur completely about uh, Claudio Ranieri with, uh, with Chris, and I, I had... Uh, Mentioned time and again, I'll mention it again one more time, had Radamel Falcao not gotten injured at Monaco, I think Ranieri keeps that job, never goes to Greece. Maybe Monaco pushes PSG the following season. We, we don't have this story. So maybe Falcao's injury, there, there's no silver lining to Falcao's injury until now because we had one of the great footballers of, of, of the last few years just struck down by injury, and he's, just, he's never recovered. Rushed back. Uh, never recovered, and we haven't talked about Falcao on this show, and obviously he impacts both Manchester United and Chelsea discussion to a certain extent. But that that's the silver lining in that injury. Uh, yes, uh, the one-on-one matchups generally won, didn't tinker with the team too much, but when he had to, when you had the suspension to Vardy, we saw him bring Schlupp in. Mark Albrighton had started the last 28 matches at, uh, at, at left midfield, and he moved Schlupp in to have that pace, that counter-attacking threat when he played Ojoa and Okazaki up top showed that Ranieri still has that tactical magic, that tactical touch that, that he's had throughout his career uh, that he didn't really have to use this season. Uh, this was far and away the best team in the league. They won the league by 10 points. They were about 10 or 12 points better in, even in their level of play uh, to any other team in the division. You, know, you could argue maybe that's uh, unfair towards Spurs, but they were certainly 10 points better than Arsenal, at least. In, in my assessment, and, and the uh, there's so much we can drone on about Leicester, so I'm going to try and uh, wrap up here. I think also the um, the massiveness of this this victory, the that massiveness of this title for English football, when other leagues seem to be getting less competitive at the top, English football now is getting more competitive, and this is validation of the league being more competitive and being less predictable. And validation for all those viewers around the world who have chosen uh, a level of entertainment that the Premier League provides over perhaps a level of football and quality that La Liga provides. Mm-hmm. So uh, this, this is this is just it, it's all good. There's there's really no negative. I know reporters, uh, cynics, they've looked for negativity in the Leicester story, uh, but there's very little negative to draw from this, other than that it probably won't happen again. That's the negative. <laughs> Yeah, you were talking Marcus Albrighton. Can you imagine being Marcus Albrighton? Three years ago, couldn't get a game for Villa. This season, Villa finishes 20th. He finishes champions with Leicester. Just just a crazy... Right. And, and played in all 38 Premier League games. Right. Played in all 38 Premier League games when he couldn't play all 38 Premier League games when Villa was fighting relegation. And we always knew he was a good prospect. He was yeah. one of the guys 
when um, Martin O'Neill left and, and Julier came in with this task of kind of bloodletting youngsters, and then unfortunately Julier got sick, got unhealthy, and had to leave, and it was all downhill from there. But he was one of the guys we talked about, Kieran Clark, Mark Albright. There, were, there was a, a pretty long list, but he was at the top of that list. And yeah. great to see him and Drinkwater and Danny Simpson, three guys who were big prospects at one point, uh, and even big prospects we thought for England. And now Drinkwater is going to get a chance at the Euros, we hope. Um, unless Jack Wilshire takes his spot, but that's a whole other subject. Right. Um, these three guys have really come big, come up big now uh, in their careers after uh, all these bumps. It, it's great. There's, like I said, there's so many good subplots of Leicester. We could do yeah. a whole show on Leicester. Yeah, Chris, let's let's finish with this question. Uh, I think uh, let's go away from the happiness back to cynicism, which is something I'm good at and the World Soccer Talk podcast is also good at. Let's talk about uh, next season for Leicester. And... I, I do think, uh, as Karthik and you have mentioned before, I think Leicester will be able to keep the nucleus of this team. But uh, someone like Conte might be moving to another club. Uh, and with that background, can you see them finishing even top four next season? I think what it depends on is, is whether someone like Conte is willing to force a move. Because from the rhetoric I'm hearing from the owners of the club, they're not looking to slow down this train at all. And I think, like I say, if Conte is willing to force that move to Arsenal, whoever, then that's one thing. Um, in terms of maintaining it, they've got the money, they've got the infrastructure, They you could argue they've now got the pull. The one concern I have is that if you look historically, Claudio Ranieri's second season is, is often when his clubs have, have struggled. Um and I think, uh, unfortunately, a slight sophomore slump is, is likely to, to hit Leicester. Yeah, I think I agree with you. And we'll be talking about that in the season preview, which will come uh, in late July and August. Uh, but we're not going away, guys. We'll be, uh, Chris Karthik and myself will be in touch with you almost every week as we talk about the Copa and a little bit about the Euro- uh, Euros as well. Uh, so you will uh, stay tuned and uh, make sure you're subscribed to the World Soccer Talk podcast. Uh, but I do want to thank uh, everyone that's been involved. I want to thank Richard, uh, first of all, for being an incredible host. Uh, and I'm kind of just trying to even get half, uh, get to a level that's half of his ability. Uh, Lawrence, who is a friend and, and a magnificent pundit, and uh, Chris and Karthik, who have uh, helped me uh, by turning my lowball questions into actual insightful analysis and also my friends Gabe and Morgan who have joined us for a couple of episodes each so uh, and then also uh, the gaffer Chris Harris for his opportunity and for keeping the World Soccer Talk podcast going and to you the listeners for what has been an incredible incredible season so if you want to get a hold of us uh, get at Chris at K Henaj on Twitter, Karthik at KKFLA737, me at Nipun Chopra7, the World Soccer Talk podcast at W Soccer Talk. Uh, and we'll be back in a week to talk uh, uh, Copa with you guys. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been a fun season, an incredible season, uh, and a fun set of World Talk, Soccer Talk podcasts. So on behalf of everyone at World Soccer Talk podcast, Karthik, enjoy your football. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.